Let's get some help. Let's pray. Very specifically, Lord, we come to you in the midst of a time of prayer and singing and worship, and we ask for your very particular help as we open your word. Dear God, you had an intention when you put this on the heart of Paul, and he spoke it, and it was recorded. And with that same intention, you have preserved it for all these years that we might have it today as your children have had access to it in the past. You know what's going on in our homes better than even we. You know the intentions of our heart, and you know our mindset. You know what's important to us and what's not important. I pray, dear God, you would now apply this passage to each one of us and help us to profit from it and help us to have a new and renewed hope that in whatever state our marriages might be, that things are about to get even better. Bless us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read the passage, I want to share a thought with you. It seems to me that we have a very destructive trend going on in our country. If you're a student of history, I think you would agree with what I'm about to say. If you go back to colonial days and you start moving forward through the 17 and into the 1800s, up until probably the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s, there was a trend in our country. And that trend was whether you were a believer in Jesus Christ or were not, that you wanted to be known for your character and you wanted to have some principles to live by that you could trust. And you can look back historically at people who did not profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and many of them professed that they lived by biblical principles because they knew they were trustworthy. Well, one of the results of that is that in their homes, they taught morality and ethics from a biblical perspective. In their home, moms and dads model for their children. And those children grew up with those values, and they have taken those values to the next generation. And that is absolutely the heritage that we have in this country. That was a trend for several hundred years. We have another trend going on today. And that is that so many mamas and daddies don't know Jesus and don't have that moral and ethical foundation. And we could discuss for hours where we lost that. Started losing it in the late 1800s when wealth became so very important. Started losing it when things and money was more important than people. Started losing it when mom and dad were enticed to let their heart and their desires go somewhere beyond the family and beyond the Lord. And the result is, these generations later, that so many homes in our country don't have that foundation. And what they are passing on is a trend that is very destructive. 
So, so many of our children, we have a technical term. We say they're being raised in dysfunctional homes. You know what a dysfunctional home is? In a spiritual sense, it's a home where there's no value placed on what the Bible teaches. In a very practical sense, it's a home where addictions are embraced and children learn from their parents about those addictions where dads physically and emotionally abuse mom, and the children are witness to that day after day and grow up with that as part of who they are, where people don't keep their word, they get a better deal or a better offer, and they change their mind, and they teach their children to do that. And there's just this whole litany of things that are symbolic of us not being people of character today. So our children grow up. So many of them today don't want to get married. Men are waiting until they're 26 on average to get married. Women, 27, 28. We say, well, they want to have a professional life. A lot of them don't want to experience what their moms and dads experienced. Now, you would think, I would think, that if you were raised in a home where there was an abuse or where there was some sort of an addiction and the child had to live with the consequences of that and suffer under that, that they would never do it themselves. Not true. Statistically, we know that those who are raised in abusive families turn around the next generation and they abuse their spouse or they abuse their children. Statistics show us that people are more likely to be addicted to a substance if their parents were addicted. And, you know, they grew up in a harsh environment because of that addiction, and you would think they would just separate themselves. It's not true. It's just statistically not true. So we have a trend going on in this country, and one of the biggest evidences, one of the most significant evidences is in the family. The family has just disintegrated. It's nothing like it used to be. God has a model for the family. I believe if you're a non-believer that you can become aware of the principles of Scripture and for the most part I think you can live by them as people did in generations past. I think if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit dwells in you at that moment that you accept Christ, I think you have a leapfrog opportunity to be successful in your family. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, please talk to me before you leave. Talk to one of our elders. Give us an opportunity to help fortify you and give you a whole new chance in life because that's what it is when you're born again. So please, don't hesitate. Say something to me at the back door. Once we've been fortified, once we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and our mind begins to be renewed and our heart has been changed out and we're a new person in Jesus Christ, all this becomes real and possible. I remember the first time I studied this passage. 
I hadn't been taught this as a young boy. And I thought, my goodness gracious, who do I know that's living by these standards or even has these objectives in life? And I could see pieces of it in my extended family and in some other families, but I didn't see this working itself out. Fellas, grab hot. If you had arms on your chairs, I'd tell you to hold on to them. Grab the sides of your seats, because if you haven't studied this before, you're about to hear something that's pretty radical, which is an indication of how far we have drifted from where we once were. This used to be the standard. Let me read to you. I want you to follow along, and please keep your Bibles open. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, I'm going to read the 21st verse, and then I'm going to drop down to the 25th. Listen very carefully for the God who has spoken to generations before us is now about to speak to us. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should, that she would be holy and blameless. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Maybe one of the things that we say when we meet someone of the opposite sex and are attracted to them, maybe one of the things we say way prematurely is, I love you. That word gets batted around in our society, and I dare say when a person says, I love you, you don't know what they really mean. We have one word in the English language, love. If you go back into the Greek language, which our Bible was written in, Koine Greek, at the time of Jesus, you would find that the word love was translated into a variety of Greek words. So they could be much more specific about what they meant. The word that was translated or used most in the streets of Greek culture is the same word that we use most to mean love. It was the word eros. It's where we get the word erotic. I want to give you a very simple definition. A pleasure-based relationship. If a person said, I eros you, or a lot of people in our language groups say, I love you, what they really mean is, I like what you do for me. I like what I get from you that brings pleasure to me. So it's all pleasure-related, and it says nothing about what I am going to do for you or say to you or care about you. It's all about what you're going to bring to me. You know the problem with that? Realizing there are a lot of problems, but you know one major problem? A couple are married, and 
Things don't work out quite like they thought. Did anybody have things work out quite like you thought? That's just not life, is it? So you say, I don't love you anymore. And what they really mean is, you're not making me happy. You see, eros is all about me. It's all about serving me. It's about how I feel and, and what you do for me. No place in our Bible does the word eros appear in the original language and get translated L-O-V-E. But it was the most common word in use then, and it is today in our culture. Self-centered kind of love. Those of you who have studied this know the second word. It's philio. The Greek word philio means I have a warm affection for you. I want you to know I philio a bunch of you. I do. I have a warm affection for you. And I sure hope you filio me. That's a complimentary thing to say. When you have a filio kind of relationship, you care about the other person. If you and I were standing on a street corner and there was a car coming and you started to step out in front of it, I'm not going to jump in front of the car. But you know what I am going to do because I have a filio relationship? I'm going to grab you and pull you back. I want what's best for you. I care about you. Philadelphia. Cities all over this country are named Philadelphia. From the root of the word filio. What's the motto of the city of Philadelphia? City of brotherly love. You see that warm affection? I was on a subway in New York with my wife and another couple after 9-11. And we were sitting there with one of these subway maps trying to figure out how to get around. And there was a lady and a man standing there, and the lady said, can I help you? Folks, I'd been to New York before. I had never had anybody say, can I help you? And I said, yes, ma'am, a little hesitantly. She could tell I was from the South, ma'am. And she came over, and she took my map, and she started showing us where to get off and on. And this man said, can I help also? And I I was a little shocked, and he stepped over, and he contributed, and they were very helpful. And when they got through, I said to them, you're very kind. I really didn't expect that. And the lady said to me, well, after 9-11, our mayor ask us all to sit down and watch TV one night at a particular time. And he said, you know, we are people who don't care about each other. We are people who can stand side by side and never look at each other and never speak to each other. And he said, that's got to change. Because of what's happened in our city to all of us, we need to be a family. We need to love each other like brothers. Filio love. It's a good thing to have. When you read the Bible, there are a couple of places, only a couple, where the Greek word philio is translated L-O-V-E. Most of the time, John 3.16, for God so agaped the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in that son would have eternal life. The word agape is used most of the time in the New Testament. And it's a beautiful word, a word that we ought to cling to. It's a word that says, 
I'm not going to get into this relationship with you because I'm looking for you to do something for me. I'm coming into this relationship, and I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to give myself totally to this relationship, and my task is to make you whole, to make you be blessed and smile at life. And that's the word that's used as he speaks to husbands. He says, husbands, love your own wife. Agape your own wife. Have a sacrificial kind of attitude toward your wife. So life is not do for me. Life is I'm going to do for you. Now I want you to go back very quickly and remember in the 21st verse, it said that we're to be equally subject to each other. Now we're talking about how the man's to be subject to the wife. He is to love her unselfishly and put her first, not himself. And I'll stop and tell you very quickly, if there's an abiding sin in every male who's ever been born, it's us wanting to be served. That's why having the Holy Spirit in us is so important to help us combat that urge that we've had since birth. And then we looked at the first couple of verses that dealt with the subjection of a wife and the encouragement of the husband to be head of the family. If you were here last week, I hope you remember that. Well, now start taking those verses and putting them together and say, well, he's to be the head of the family and he's to love me and be taking care of me and putting me first. Can you see how it starts to blend together? God had a wonderful plan. He says to us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love us? We're the church. He died for us. He took us while we were yet sinners. He didn't say, I want you to perform for me. I don't want you to make me happy. He came for the sole purpose of dying to wash away our sins. And in doing so, to give us the assurance that we're going to go to heaven. Not because we did it right. Because he did it right. And that's the example to a husband. I want you to give yourself away. Not based on condition. Not based on performance. Because the minute you do that, we're back into eros. And that's not what God wants. Does that help? Does that help you, fellas? To understand? What a model we have. He goes on and says to us in 26, Husbands, I want you to sanctify your wives. <coughs> Excuse me, I want to reread 26, and I want you to look at it carefully. Maybe, maybe in the whole Bible, this is one of the verses I have struggled the most with. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now he's talking about Jesus and the church. He's talking about a husband and his wife. And he's saying, I want you to see the parallelism between the two. What's Jesus done for us? Jesus came to us without condition. He died for us that we might live. 
His Holy Spirit dwells in us and now gives us the ability to read the Word and to understand it. And Jesus is partly the Holy Spirit, and God is the Holy Spirit, and he is now working in us to apply the Word to help set us aside for the rest of our life that we might grow in our oneness with him. You all got that? Now apply that to the family. God says, those of you who are ahead of these families and your wives are going to encourage you to be, what I want you to do is I want you to be used by me to help sanctify, to help set aside for a holy use your wife. Now, I want you to know, when I got married, nobody ever told me that was part of the contract. Never dawned on me I had a spiritual responsibility in the relationship. But God has given us one. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to wash her in the word. Can you picture that? He says, I want you to engulf her with the word. I want the word to be so prevalent in your relationship that she will just operate in that area and you'll be a constant encouragement. So what some men say is, okay, I'll preach to my wife every day. Let's have a devotional time and let's sit down. We'll use Bill Barton's pulpit voice and we'll get it on and I'll tell you how to live. That's not what that means. When you engulf... It's a way of life. And what the Lord is saying, and this is so precious, he's saying, hey, fellas, talking to me and you, I want you to get to know this book. I want you to so love my word that it becomes part of who you are. And then I want you to relate to your wife and your children filled with my word. And it will be like showering her with the word it'll be all around it'll be in our thinking process it'll be in our speaking it'll be a way of life but you and I fellas have to learn the word of God to accomplish that now I see a couple of real issues anybody else see any issues one of the issues I see is that many of us have said and I said this when I was in the business world and unfortunately in the ministry some too Well, you know, my job is to go out and earn a living. So, Linda, you take care of the kids. And she did. All three of our children came to know Jesus because of my wife. I was too busy serving the Lord. Not how it's supposed to be. You put the Lord God first in your life. You put your family second in your life. Realizing there are times when you do more or less of those things, but on the average, God first, family second, work third. Took me a while to learn that. Second thing, to read the word all the time. For some people, that's very easy. I kiddingly say, I think God put me in the ministry so I'd read his word on a regular basis. And that's happened. I do read his word on a regular basis. Uh, I hope in retirement years I'll continue to do it. Thirdly, we haven't done that, have we? We've made some mistakes. May have built up some resentment. 
may have messed things up really bad. I wish I had the time to tell you this whole experience, but our son, who's deceased, he and the man he worked for were not getting along well. The man wanted him to work longer hours than our son wanted to work, and our son was in the top ten producers in the United States of America in what he did. Should have been very happy with him. The man just wanted more company loyalty. And our son wanted to go home and be with his family. So at a reasonable time in the afternoon, he went home. And they couldn't let him go because he did so well for the company. When he died, that gentleman, who's a friend of ours now, he was with us 24 hours a day from a Wednesday night until our son died on Monday. When we got ready to leave, Jackson, Mississippi, and go back to Columbia, South Carolina, where we were going to do the funeral, this man said, would you have breakfast with me? And I told him I really didn't want to. I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And he asked me again, please. I thought he wanted to talk about insurance or something else, and I wasn't interested. But I finally because he kept asking me. I agreed. Well, he and his counterpart, who was responsible for another big chunk of the United States, they both came, and I invited my younger son to go. And we sat down at the table. My son's employer said, we've been with you and your family through all of this. He said, I'm going to go home and ask my wife if she will allow me to be her husband. And he said, I've already made plans to fly back up north where our two sons live. And I'm going to go to them immediately and ask their forgiveness and ask if I might be their daddy. You know what that is? It's really having messed up big time. But having this as a guideline. And God used the death of our son to bring both of those men around where they had a new set of values. And that is precisely what God's doing with us. He wants us to be men of the word and wants us to live it under conviction and to let it be all around us and all around our families in our thinking and in our behavior and the way we talk. And I think some of us probably need to say to our wives, we're sorry. Help me start again. Encourage me to be head of house. And now I understand being head of house is not dominating. Instead, it's being the spiritual leader of our relationship and our family. If you look on down at the next verse, he says something again I think most men are not aware of. In verse 27, he says, That he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here's that contrast again. Jesus is saying through Paul, what I have done for you, the church, is I have washed away your sins. And I want you to realize that I have prepared you for eternal life. 
And when we get to judgment day, we're not going to be judged on our everyday performance to get into heaven. If that happened, then we absolutely are being saved by works, not grace. So when we get to judgment day, God is going to look at how we lived our lives and there's going to be a reward of sorts in heaven based on how we've lived our lives. He's saying here, husbands, when you come to judgment day and you're standing before me, we're going to take an inventory of what you did in your relationship with your wife. One of the questions I'm going to ask you is, I entrusted a wife to you for spiritual purpose. What you do with that opportunity? I'd like to improve my case a little bit between now and the time I get to Judgment Day. How about you guys? There's some things I'd like to do I haven't done. There's some things I'd like to fix that need fixing. Because I am positive reading this, that on Judgment Day, God's going to stand every one of us up and say, let's take an accounting, guys. And what that says is we need to be responsible. We need to be responsible now that we're believers to live by these words and to strive to. And you're not going to get it perfect and I'm not going to get it perfect, but we need to be people of purpose. And when we are, the relationship will blossom even more because we're doing what God wants us to do. Remember the name Paul Harvey? You know anything about his wife? Based on things I heard Paul Harvey say, I'm assuming he was a born-again Christian. He certainly did have those values and did make references. When his wife died, he didn't go to the studio the next day. And he was never alive on the air again in his life. Did you know that? It stopped the day she died. She directed his professional career. She directed the radio show that you and I listened to. She was in the planning for all of his speaking engagements. She was very much a part of his daily life. And apparently he loved her very much. And when she died, a piece of Paul Harvey died. And I think back about that, and I remember reading that one of the reasons the latter years of his life that he was on the radio is because she didn't want to stop. So out of love for her, he sacrificed and did for her to make her happy. And when she died, he stopped doing that. Pretty good model for us. Now, gentlemen, I want you to know, I had forewarned you and told you that I wanted you to come this morning. I'd like you to come next week. And the reason is I want to tell you the rest of the story. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for the challenge it presents to us, both for wives and for husbands. I pray for all of us, Lord, that there'd be a re-meeting of our minds 
And I pray, dear God, that as we understand more thoroughly what it is you want for us, that we would tell our children and our grandchildren and we'd tell others that we meet that each one of us in this room who understand today more clearly might be a messenger to help other families and to start a new trend in this country. Thank you, Lord, for talking with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, dear God, for your grace in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.